Well, let's go up to the mountain. If you will turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter, and we pick up at the 28th verse. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. And listen then for the voice of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and they went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus and they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The word of the Lord. You may remember that the University of Pennsylvania studied what kind of articles get emailed the most frequently. For almost a year, they checked the New York Times website every 15 minutes and analyzed thousands upon thousands of articles. They assessed controlling factors like the placement of the article on the screen or the time of day. They use algorithms to track emotional words and assess their relative uh, positive or negative effects. They took thousands of sample articles and used independent readers to identify qualities like practical value or surprising. They did not have a category for Ted Boswell's laugh in that. <laughs> <laughs> they asked the question, which stories do people want to share and why? Now, granted, this was the New York Times, so maybe the results were skewed by a certain kind of reader, but the researchers, or a certain kind of article, but the researchers were surprised by what they discovered. 
They did not uncover a vast liberal conspiracy. They did not find that the titillating or the torrid was what people passed on. They didn't find that the most popular articles were things like how your diet threatens your marriage and why it's Biden's fault. <laughs> what they found was that readers wanted to share articles that inspired awe. The most common underlying theme to the articles that were forwarded was awe. And they defined awe as, and I quote, an emotion of self-transcendence, a feeling of admiration and elevation in the, fate of in the face of something greater than the self. And they used two criteria for an awe-inspiring story. Its scale was large. And it required some manner of mental accommodation. It required the reader to view the world in a different way. As the researchers wrote, it involves the opening and the broadening of the mind. Seeing the Grand Canyon, standing in front of a beautiful piece of art, hearing a grand theory or listening to a beautiful symphony may all inspire awe. So may the revelation of something profound and important in something you may have seen as ordinary or routine or seeing a causal connection between important things and seemingly remote causes. What a wonderful discovery. Sure, people still forwarded articles that were humorous or meant to impress their friends with how hip or erudite they were. But the researchers suggested something loftier, something nobler, something more evangelical. Again, in their words, emotion in general leads to transmission and awe is quite a strong emotion. If you've just read this story that changes the way, I, if I've just read this story that changes the way I understand the world and myself, and I wanna talk to others about what it means, I wanna proselytize and share the feeling of awe. If you read the article and feel the same emotion, it will bring us closer together. The story of the Transfiguration, forwarded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is a story of awe. And I'm not sure that the intention of the gospel writer or the rightful intention of a sermon is to take this bizarre text and whittle it down to a clear point with a practical application. Rather, there's something here that is mysterious, transcendent, luminous, and bigger than us. There's something here that's awful, that requires mental accommodation. 
So consider. Clearly, the disciples were buffaloed. First of all, they're drowsy. They went up the mountain to pray, and they fell asleep. Nudge your neighbor. When they wake, baffled and bewildered, they don't know what to do. The text reads that their sleep was heavy. The Greek word has a sense of weight to it. And hard to shake. And maybe as the disciples woke to three shiny men, they thought they were still dreaming. Peter starts blabbering away like a busybody, trying to do something helpful like build a campground. But bemused and befuddled, even he doesn't know what he's doing. As one scholar puts it, all that's missing is the cosmic hand reaching down to give Peter a good, you're missing the point, slap upside the head. One might imagine God, God's annoyance that Peter doesn't have sense enough to remain silent at such a moment. If Moses was told he couldn't see God and live, perhaps Peter should have been told he couldn't see God and talk so much. What a wonderful scene. What a scene full of mystery and awe. Maybe you want to forward it to others. Dear friends, we all want moments of bright, shining awe. There's a deep human desire for the luminous inbreaking of God. We know a longing to be caught up in something that's bigger than us, something that causes us to reconfigure, grow, enlarge our sense of self and world, and enlarge our sense of who God is. I've been to Israel twice. The first time, I went wondering if place mattered. How are these stories rooted in historical reality? Are these stories rooted in historical reality? Are these stories just stories that communicate spiritual truths, or is there historical detail that matters? When, when I voiced this question to my traveling companions, a bunch of pastors, a Baptist pastor told me that I quote, and I quote, that I needed to get right with Jesus. But I didn't come away with very clear answers. There are places where the details made unmistakable geographical and historical sense. I remember standing with my Bible open. Well, that, that just makes sense. And there are other places with no certainty or evidence 
or historical integrity. Depending on your tour guide's theological, political, or religious slant, different stories happened in different places. For example, there are two graves for Jesus. There is a great deal of Luke that makes geographical sense. The last few weeks, we followed Jesus down from the rocky hills of Nazareth to the sloped shores of the Sea of Galilee and onto a plain for a sermon. And this morning, Jesus takes his disciples up a mountain. However, there's no indication of what mountain. The Gospel of Matthew has it as a high mountain. The Franciscans built a beautiful chapel atop Mount Tabor to commemorate the Transfiguration. But there's no evidence in the text or in the historical record that they're right. Our text is geographically uncertain but theologically overstuffed. The mountain in our story has been called the Mount Rushmore of heaven because the lawgiver, Moses, the prophet, Elijah, and the Messiah, Jesus, are all present. And there are these allusions to Moses on the mountain with light shining through his face and God speaking in a cloud and and there's a kind of high-level cabinet conversation about the departure of Jesus. And the word for departure here is the same word used for exodus. It's the Greek word for exodus. They're talking about the exodus. They're talking about the glory of God as exodus. Exodus from the, all that are enslaved. Exodus from sin, exodus from all that dehumanizes, exodus from death. The glory of God is on display and light is breaking out all over and the disciples are rubbing their eyes and the transcendent God is unmistakably present. Awesome. And I don't say awesome very often. But the truth is, we don't get many moments like that. We live by a dappled light in a messy world. We live by a dappled light in a messy world. Most of us do without the benefit of moments of transfiguring light. On our best days, we are simply doing the best we can with what we've got and who we are. And we tend to get moments of muted transcendence. The light of a morning sun over water 
the joy of a child running across a field of freshly mowed grass, the beauty of music that makes your hair stand on end and your eyes pool up with water, the silence of a sky of stars over a desert mountain. We tend to get moments of muted transcendence. Even in the image of God shining back at us in another person, we tend to get moments of muted transcendence. And yet, as Adam Thomas notes, over the years, however, our luminosity tends to fade. Every inhospitable word spoken, every neighbor mistreated, and every resource hoarded layers grime over our radiance. Every hand unextended, every gift squandered, and every road not taken leaves layers of apathetic dust. The world tells us that the radiant things out there are, are things we purchase. When you wear the shiny stone or drive the shiny car, you too will shine. Too often we seed our light to the glossy detritus of the world and forget that we are the ones God made to shine. That's a good quote. Too often we cede our light to the glossy detritus of the world and forget that we are the ones God made to shine. So, so where then are moments of awe? Where does transcendence tumble in? If it's muted and muddled in creation and creature, where does God's glory break in? What requires of us mental accommodation to change how we see self, world, God? Where then are there moments of awe? The testimony of scripture is that Jesus illumines the face of God. If you want to see Jesus, or if you want to see God, look in the face of Jesus. If you want to hear God, listen to the voice of Jesus. If you want to see divinity, it's pushing through the surface of Jesus. God is shining through his skin. We encounter God in that light. For in Jesus, the image of God is not smudged, diluted, diminished, or defective, but clear unmistakable, and self-authenticating. I don't know where else to look to see God clearly. 
And if God is clearly illumined when Jesus' face is glowing, then God is just as clearly illumined when Jesus looks over Jerusalem and weeps, when Jesus teaches, when Jesus breaks bread with friends, when Jesus suffers on the cross, when Jesus breathes his last, when Jesus... Even there, glory breaks in, and it's awful. So, dear friends, whether in church or classroom or funeral home or office cubicle or AA meeting or wedding party or lonely, restless night, if you're looking for God, if you want to encounter God, if you long for awe, look to Jesus. In the words of Fleming Rutledge, and this is one of my favorite quotes. I've gone back to this a number of times. This may be, you may remember this, but I, uh, uh, this is for me... Um, Yeah, I put this on my preaching gravestone. Even as the preacher stands before you, bent and crippled by sin like the rest of all humanity, the message is that the light of redemption has dawned upon us all in the journey of the Son of God through death into life. It's true on the brilliant days but even more true on the cloudy ones when faith is tested and hope is nearly dead. The very glory of God shines in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. He dies and he shines for you. Thanks be to God. Amen.